Let's come back together, prepare to dig into Acts chapter 28. Today we finish the text of Acts and the book of Acts. Um, We joke that we're trying to write 29 and 30, but um, we don't have those done yet. No. um, Next week we will have um, the rest of the story of Paul's life because Acts doesn't finish that. But um, yeah, we come to the end of Acts and it's it's, um, sad for me because it's been a wonderful time of studying how the church was formed, how the church is unquenchable, but also how the gospel goes, goes forward. I was thinking through the song, the words of one of the songs we sang, um, Christ be magnified. We sang, oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. And from what I've seen from Paul, I think he would love that song. I think that song sort of embodies his focus, his goal in life. Everything was about Christ and then being a testimony for for Christ to a lost world. And again, this morning, we see this story unfold again. And we see this repetition where Paul, the core of his life, the thrust of his life is wanting people to know Jesus. And then today we also see some of the hindrances, some of the objections people have, some of the roadblocks people have to coming to Jesus and coming to faith in Jesus and truly giving their heart to him. And so, so really today we want to see two things. We want to see Paul's heart, that Christ be magnified in everything he does. And we want to ask ourselves then with that question, what's the focus of my life? What is the thrust of my life? What do I spend my energy on? How would people describe me? And then also, when we look at Paul's desire that all would hear and be receptive to the gospel and some of the obstacles to that, the second thing I hope we ask ourselves today is what keeps me from embracing the gospel? What keeps me from embracing the truth of Scripture? What keeps me from being wholehearted, devoted to Jesus Christ? And those are the two questions that will burn in our hearts as we end Acts in this text today. And I think Luke intentionally ends with those two questions. As we've seen the gospel go to the world, and he wants us to, to, the Holy Spirit through Luke, wants that to be the thrust of our lives. And then we also, as we look at some of the obstacles, we want to make sure that our hearts are right with God. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31 today. As Paul interacts with people at Rome. Last week, Paul arrived at Rome. Um, he secured his own place and he's under house arrest. Ro- guards are guarding him 24 hours a day. Bet that was a fun job. And especially with what we see today. And so he has secured this, this home and support for that. Possibly they could have um, done some trade work and he could have done some tent making or something out of his home, out of the property. But more than likely, it was churches supporting him and helping him out and giving him the means he had to live. Because while under arrest in his own home, he still had to provide his own food. He still had to pay his own rent. And so they they, they had to work all of that out. This is the situation that we, we left Paul in at the end of last week. It is not the most ideal situation to continue God's work from man's eyes. 
if we are arrested, if we are having to provide for ourselves, if we are in chains with a guard, it might be tempting to say, you know what, I'm just going to chill for a couple of years. I'm just going to relax and figure out how this works out. But not Paul. Not Paul. And so today we see what he does, and we get just a glimpse of his first few days in Rome as an example of what the two years in Rome looks like. And so the first thing he does in, in point number one, Paul starts by clearing his record and piquing the Jews' interest in the truth. I love using the word piquing. And in case, I think it's on the screen so you know how to spell it. Um, I actually spelled it differently in my notes, and then I looked it up. I'm like, that's not how you spell it. Have you heard the phrase piquing someone's interest? I'm like, we don't use that anymore. We need to reclaim this word because this is an awesome word. And, and so Paul's going to start by piquing their interest in the gospel, by, by pulling them together. But he starts by addressing some of the charges. So he clears his name to be above reproach, and then he piques their interest in what's going on and what the message is. Read with me in verse 17. After three days, so, you know, three days, set up your household. That's pretty quick. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And so he starts, as he did everywhere else he went, he starts with the Jews, right? We've seen this over and over. He would start in the synagogue, preach there until they kicked him out, and then he'd preach to the rest of the city over and over and over again. He does the same thing in Rome. He's just under house arrest, so he invites the Jews. He starts there because the Jews were God's chosen people. And the Messiah, Jesus, came as a Jewish man to the Jews, and so he wanted to give the, his heart was for his people to have a, a first chance to come to Christ. And so we see his heart to bring his people to the Lord. But he starts by clearing his record, making sure he's above reproach. I did nothing against our people. Still, they handed me over to the Romans. Verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So he goes on to say, the Romans couldn't find anything wrong with me. Now he's summarizing there because sometimes... The, the governor would, would not let him go, would say he was innocent, but not let him go because of being afraid of the Jews. But all of that he's summarizing that they didn't find anything wrong. They could have let me go if, all th- if there were no other circumstances, and they would have. And then verse 19, but because the Jews objected, because they wanted to kill me, because they were trying to, to set ambushes for me, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now that's an interesting phrase. And here he's again, making sure he's above reproach. I haven't done anything wrong against our people. And that last phrase, though I had had no charge to bring against my nation, the idea there is I have no ill intent for Israel. I have no ill intent for the Jewish people. I have nothing I'm going to complain about. I wasn't complaining about things. I love my people. I want them to come to Christ. And so he just wants to share the good news with them. Verse 20, or yeah, verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Fourth time in Acts we've heard him use the word hope. 
sometimes with hope of Israel, hope of the resurrection. But he keeps bringing this up. What a great way to pique their interest, though, right? You know what? I've done nothing wrong, but the Jews keep, keep getting in the way of the Romans releasing me, so I had to appeal to here. This is why I'm here, because of the hope I have for Israel, because of the hope that you all have from the prophets. And so their question, again, these are Jewish leaders, is, okay, what is this hope? What's he talking about? I know what our hope is. Our hope is that a Messiah will someday come. Our hope is that the the Romans will be eventually kicked out. But what is this guy named Paul thinking our hope is? And he says, because of the hope that I'm wearing this chain. And I can see him, again, he doesn't expand on this here. That's going to come. He's just getting their interest to open up the door for another meeting for a a larger chance to share the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. And so it's sort of like saying, hey, this is what I'm about. Do you want to know more? Do you really want to know more? Because I can tell you more, just not today. You'll have to come back. And so that's what he does here. He's going to talk about the, the Messiah and the resurrection. Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil, any evil against you. And so their first response is, this is news to us. We, we don't know any of the charges against you. Now, there, there's all kinds of questions. Are they lying to Paul? Maybe. Wouldn't put it past them. But chances are that the, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, once he appealed to Caesar, once they had gone through three trials at Caesarea, Once the Romans have said, there's nothing here to charge him with, chances are when it comes to, do we go before the emperor and press charges of which we know they're not valid? I'm not going there. I'm just going to go back to Jerusalem. We sort of accomplished our purpose because Paul's out of our hair. He's halfway around the world in Rome. And so I think probably the most likely is they really hadn't heard any of the charges because all of the charges got dropped or ignored, no one was willing to pursue them at risk of their own lives before the emperor. And so they say, we haven't heard anything about it. We haven't heard any evil reports. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And so, really interesting situation. Rome, the gospel has gotten to Rome. The church has has gotten to Rome. We already know that Paul met some brothers in Christ there. And their answer is, yeah, we haven't heard anything bad about you, but Christianity, the way, we've heard some things people speak against that. And so why don't you tell us about Christianity? Oh, isn't that great? He piqued their interest and they asked for more information. By the way, when we are, when we are witnessing, when we are talking with someone that's an unbeliever, this is a brilliant strategy to, to pique their interest, to ask questions that make them want to know more. Because as soon as they then respond with, I want to know more, then we have a much better chance at a productive discussion. And, and so Paul here clears his record. He's above reproach, but then he piques their interest in the truth. And, and what an example for us to live above reproach to live lives that people around us think that we are or know that we are men and women of integrity, know that something is different about us, know that we are different from the world, 
and then want to ask why. And then want to figure it out. Because when you're different from this world, it's weird. And it's okay to be weird when it comes to being different from the world. Don't just be weird for weird's sake. But to be different from this world is, is strange to people. It's not understandable. And it should pique people's interest into what's different. How can we be different? And what kinds of ways can we be different that aren't abrasive, that keep us above reproach, but make people interested in hearing the gospel? And and we're going to have a little bit of interaction this morning, just because I haven't done this in a while and I love this. What are ways you think that we can be different in a good way and and make people interested in the gospel without being off-putting to the gospel? I want us to think about this this morning. Saying grace in public, yeah. Say, thanking God for the food, having that, that gratitude, and, and people notice that. Never compromising on the truth, yeah. In, in, a, in a way that isn't abrasive, but is firm. And that's a hard line, especially if you're online. You're going to be abrasive, so just don't do it online. <laughs> Someone else, how can we be different? Yeah, I don't know if you heard it. Living your life in pe- with peace and joy, and quietly with peace and joy, because peace and joy are evident in our world. I'm, I'm summarizing. Oh, that, that our peace and joy would be evident to others. And by being friendly with others. Yes, yeah, showing God's love. But peace and joy are something a lot of people don't have right now. There's a lot of angst and anger in this world. Peace and joy will go a long way to people saying, okay, what's different about you? Either you have no clue what's going on or you have a different basis, right? Okay, over here. Go to church. Thank you. That's a great answer. Being committed to, being committed to a church body, that's different today. You know, maybe all your friends are out playing um, Fortnite or something this morning or Valorant or whatever it is this week. Um, and you're at church. And that is a way to, to let people know that there's a difference. People might say, why, why are you going to church? Great answer. Yeah. By living a life that is upright and omitting those things, people notice. By praying to God. By being a, a person of prayer. And I've talked about this before. As you talk with people and someone shares something, it is okay to ask if you can pray for them. I have yet to have someone turn me down. Believers, unbelievers. Because you're showing care, you're showing love, and when someone is in distress, suddenly there's not as many atheists. And so, yeah, there was another hand over here. Yeah. Love your enemies. Yeah, instead of having a vitriol towards them to love them, people will see that, and again, they'll think it's strange, but hopefully it'll pique their interest. One more. Strong and courageous. Yeah, not giving up, but having hope and being strong and courageous. We could go on and on and on. I love this discussion because this is taking Paul's example and saying, how can we do this? He's chained to a guard in his house, and he's finding a way to get a crowd to hear the gospel of their own volition. That is brilliant. And we're going to see just what the response is in the next point. So point number two, 23 through 27. The sickness of people's hearts keeps many from believing the truth of Jesus' work. 
The sickness of people's hearts keeps many from believing the truth of Jesus' work. And we're going to find Paul reasons, he testifies, but many won't get over their obstacles and believe. Because their heart has, has sickness in it. Their heart has obstacles. And at this point, I want to really dive into that. Because Paul here even quotes Isaiah and something that Jesus, the same passage that Jesus quoted about hearts that were closed to him. So verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, so they're there, he gets their interest, and so they set up a day for, for when he can share. They're setting it up. This, this is awesome. They, they had appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And so Paul gets their interest, and he lives enough. Uh, his lifestyle is a lifestyle of integrity and godliness that people want to know what's going on. And they come, a, a crowd comes. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. So it would be like if I started preaching now and I didn't stop till maybe 6 or 7 tonight. We're good with that? We'll have a pizza come in or something. But um, that they stayed. So Paul was engaging in his manner. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the two things, the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And, and the wording there for expounded and testifying is that Paul laid out a logical, ordered testimony of the truth of these things. Paul was a logical guy. Paul um, was, was, a, was committed to truth. He was an academic. And he was able to lay out academically why the kingdom of God was true and why the truth of Je- salvation through Jesus Christ was true. And, and I, I don't want us to miss that. Sometimes we think of faith as this feelings. No, our, our faith is actually extremely logical and makes sense when we dive into it and when we understand the details of it. And so Paul spends the whole day doing this. Two things, like I said, the kingdom of God, dealing with God's rule over all, his unfolding plan to redeem creation to himself. But the problem with talking about the kingdom of God is that God is holy. And God is just, and none of us are holy and just on our own. We have all sinned. And so when you talk about the kingdom of God, you have to talk about how can we enter the kingdom of God. Because we can't do it on our own. And so that's the second point that Paul uses to talk about Jesus. And Paul would talk about Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, where he paid for the penalty of our sins. In his body, as the God-man, he paid for the penalty of our sins that we can't pay for so that we would be righteous before God with Jesus' righteousness. Sometimes we call it the beautiful exchange. He took the jacket of our sin and ugliness on himself and gave us his jacket, his cloak of righteousness. What an amazing story. And Paul was able to go through the law the Torah, he was able to go through the prophets and show over and over why this was true. And, and so you, you get this story of salvation, the kingdom of God, of God working to redeem creation to himself, Jesus standing at the center of God's sovereign rule. And, and with how he presented it and how convincing he was and the proof that he had, how could people not respond? How could people not respond? Have you ever had someone that you've told truth to? And maybe it's something simple in life, like 
hey, that's my car or something. I, I don't know what it is. But that you've told truth to that they will not believe it. They will not believe it. Sometimes, not, not to get too, do I go there? Sometimes with conspiracy theories we can have this. Sometimes with flat earth belief we can have this. Where you have all this proof but somebody will not believe. And so Paul now explores why won't we believe? Why won't we accept truth? Why won't we believe truth? Spiritually, what gets in the way of us giving our hearts to Jesus? And so Paul here goes there in 24, 25, and 26, and 27. 24, so Paul's done with his presentation. And some were convinced by what he said. Word there is the same word that's used elsewhere in Acts of believed. And so I think some say, well, maybe they were convinced but didn't really believe. It's the same terminology in the comparisons. It looks like some believed. Praise God. Some were convinced by what he had said, and others disbelieved. They refused. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And so picture this. Paul's preached all day. Some respond, come to know the Lord. It's an amazing, that, that's Paul's heart, is for his people to come to know the Lord. Others won't come to the Lord. They're disagreeing with each other. They don't believe the truth of Scripture. And before they leave, actually they leave because of what Paul does next, Paul makes one last statement. He makes one last statement challenging their unbelief, exposing the reasons for their unbelief, or exposing the unbelief itself. End of 25. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. One little Easter egg there. What does Paul say about Isaiah? Book of Isaiah? That given by the Holy Spirit. This is a testimony to Paul is affirming the inspiration of Scripture, that, that this is God-breathed. So he said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, 26 and 27. Don't use this at a family gathering. It might not work. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Basically, he says, by their own choice, they're ignorant. They're refusing to accept truth because the sin in their lives can't handle, (laughs) you can't handle the truth. Uh, Their sin in their lives can't handle the truth. Their sin in their lives keep them from accepting and turning to the Lord couple of little things. In verse 25, the Holy Spirit, you have the inspiration of Scripture, but you get a remarkable change in Paul's language. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet. This is one of the first times he switches to your. Even earlier, um, what does it say? I didn't write down the verse, but he calls them brothers um, earlier in the passage. So he's calling the Jewish people his brothers. This time, the ones that will not come to Christ, he says, your fathers. And he distances himself from the disbelief. Because those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of God's kingdom, part of God's family. Those that don't are not part of God's family. 
And so we have at the end of Acts here a clear divide between those that are receptive and those that aren't. And it will span, it'll, it'll cross race, it'll cross location. It comes to who comes to the Lord and who doesn't. But out of this prophecy from Isaiah 6, 9, out of this prophecy, we see a number of things. This is a divine judgment, a divine judgment on, of, of those that have refused to understand. Their heart, the heart here represents understanding, the core of our understanding, the core of our will. And so this is a, a divine judgment on those that won't understand because they have closed their eyes. They have closed their ears. They have chosen not to understand. They have let the obstacles rule the day. And they won't believe. Because of Paul's presentation, there was head knowledge, but there was no heart knowledge. And they couldn't come to that position. Now, before we look at this story and say, and I shared this with the elders this morning, before we come to this story and say, those stupid people, how could you miss it? How could their hearts be closed to the truth? I'm glad that wouldn't be me. Before we say that, understand that this is us many times. And so we close our ears and eyes to the truth. Maybe for most in here, you've accepted Christ, you're following Christ, but maybe it's certain areas of, of your life that God wants you to surrender to him. And then we're like, nope. No, and we close our ears and we close our eyes because we don't want to hear it. We don't want to turn. And so in your notes, I have five different obstacles or five different hearts. And we see these in, in various places here, but also throughout Acts with some of the Jewish leaders. The first problem, the, the, the first reason they wouldn't believe the beautiful truth of the gospel is arrogant hearts. Arrogant hearts. The Isaiah text starts with, you see, but you can't perceive. You hear, but you can't understand. And it's like you keep hearing, you keep seeing. And so it's a people, and we know this from, from the Jewish rulers, they keep hearing the truth, but they think they have a better understanding, so they can't understand what's being presented. They have too much knowledge, they're too full of self, they won't accept truth if it slaps them in the face. Or they won't admit fault, which is sometimes their case. Because if they admit the truth of what Paul is saying, then they have to admit that, the Messiah was crucified. And their arrogance keeps them from repenting and coming to the knowledge of the truth. It makes them closed. It makes them ignorant. Quite frankly, when someone thinks they have it now, when someone thinks they understand something, when someone is no longer a learner, that arrogance makes them ignorant because we're closed to understanding truth. When we think we know something and we can't wait to tell others we know, that's arrogant hearts. Arrogant hearts. Now, this is something, especially when I think of, of those that have grown up in the church. And let me talk to our young people for a moment. When you've grown up in the church and you've heard these truths over and over and over, it can be so easy to think of them as, yeah, I know that. And we become, in a way, arrogant about our knowledge, arrogant about what we know, and we miss the truth of a relationship with God. 
especially you get into your high school and young adult years and you're at that age where you're making decisions and you think, oh, I know this. And that arrogance makes us like these people that Paul is talking to. For any of us that have been in the church a long time, it is so easy to get to a point where we know the word and we want to study and get the history and all, and all those things are great. You've heard me teach all those things. But when that's devoid of things that show a relationship with God, like prayer and a heart for prayer and like um, listening to the Holy Spirit, then we have arrogant hearts. And, and we, are, we are vaunting and we are elevating knowledge over relationship. Both are necessary. Both are needed. And so don't let the length of time you've walked with God stifle your ability to still learn what God has for you and still be touched in your heart by what God wants us to change. But that's hard because we don't like to change and we don't like to admit fault. They see, but they can't perceive. They hear, but they can't understand. The next thing that, that that prophecy goes on in verse 27, for this people, people's heart has grown dull. And the next two points, B and D, there are dull hearts and hard hearts. The word means both. And so I think they're worth exploring dull hearts. Paul, Paul says, your heart is dull. And the idea of dull, the, the first set of meanings for dull is to become thick, to become fat, to become lazy. And so... This is the idea of in our, in our faith that we become lazy in our faith. We become just sort of apathetic in our faith. And, and it dulls your senses. That, that's, that's literally what the word means, to dull your senses. You're not able to process well. You're not able to understand. And so to be, be spiritually lazy is a dangerous place to be. And this is where the Jewish leaders were. They were so convinced of their traditions and their ways that they would not wake up their hearts to see something different. The more you aren't in the word, the duller your heart will get. Because the word exercises our heart. The word um, helps us understand truth. If you're not in the word, you are opening yourselves to all kinds of, of false teaching, all kinds of false ideas. Because your heart has grown dull. We get out of practice with the truth. Satan will use all kinds of stuff to distract and dull our senses. We, we get lazy with the pursuit of other things. Other things interfere. Our devices, and, and I'm not saying get rid of your devices. I still have mine. But our devices can get in the way of our love for God's word. They can distract. They can dull our heart because something new and exciting has our heart. And God's word doesn't. And so the the warning here, and, and I hope we catch the seriousness of Paul's warning, is their hearts have grown dull, but ours can with pursuits, with sports, with entertainment, with our devices. And our hearts grow dull when those things replace time in God's word. Oh, village, love God's word. Love reading it. Love memorizing it. Love praying it. 
don't let your hearts grow dull. Because when our hearts are dull, it is an open door for the evil one to attack and try to grab our hearts. We can come to a point where amazing grace loses its amazement, even when we know it's true. We can come to a point where our hearts are so distracted that we stop believing truth and start looking for something new to excite our heart, to stimulate our heart, to prod our emotions. In so many ways, emotionalism in Christianity is a result of dull, lazy hearts. Because God's word is no longer doing it for us, so we've got to find some external source. So Paul calls them dull, calls their hearts dull. The other set of definitions for the the Greek word that's used for dull here is hardened, to make impervious, to be calloused, hard to penetrate. And so letter C there is the danger is a hard heart, a heart that is so used to sin, that is so used to disbelief, that it is seared to the point of we don't even care. We don't even notice sin anymore because it's just part of life. We asked, how would the world see us different? When our hearts are hard, the world won't see us different. Because we're the same as everyone else. Think, think the, the, the word picture here, think of a callus on your feet. Anyone have a callus on your feet? If you've gone barefoot like all summer. And what happens with calluses? They get hard, they get thick. You know, and it's God's way of, of letting us be barefoot a lot this summer, and eventually you don't feel the stinging 100-degree asphalt or the rocks you step on. But that's the word Paul is using for our hearts, that sin has so hardened our hearts and seared our hearts that we're no longer convicted by anything. Marshall said this, they themselves have made their hearts impervious to the word of God. We say the word of God is is alive and powerful, a two-edged sword that pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. But we can get to a point where we can harden our hearts so much that we refuse to let the word of God change us, affect us. Another author said, the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. And the receptiveness makes a difference if we're wax or clay. Wax, the flame of God's word, will soften and will melt and can be formed into his image. Clay, the flame hardens and makes it rigid, and that's it. That's how it's going to look until it's broken in pieces. Are you wax or clay? Are you looking for God to change you? Are you looking for God to mold your heart? Even if you've been a believer 50 years, are you looking for God to still mold your heart? The Jewish leaders had resisted so long they couldn't receive it, many of them. There was no longer a desire or need for God's healing, for his love, for his forgiveness, because their sacrifices accomplished all that in their mind. And so they couldn't come to the point of being convicted by God's word. Our receptiveness matters. We are a great people at self-defensiveness and of self-rationalization. 
But as, God words, as God's word convicts, if we push it aside and listen and refuse to listen to it long enough, the heart will grow hard and we will not respond. Now, the beauty of all this is we can come to the Savior, we can come to the Spirit, and he can remove a callus in about one second. About as long as it takes to say, I repent, I come to you, soften my heart, give me a heart of flesh and not of stone. And God's forgiveness pours down and his grace pours down and he changes it. And so having a hard heart, a calloused heart is not a permanent thing because the work of Christ can fix it. And so we need to be aware of having arrogant hearts. Be on guard against dull hearts, lazy hearts. Be on guard against hardened hearts that are callous in our sins and callous in our approach to life. We need to be aware of and on guard against spiritually blind hearts. Eyes they have closed. And that's what Paul says in those verses. You, you have eyes to see, but you don't perceive. A little bit later in 27, their eyes have closed. They are spiritually blind. This might be thinking through the claims of the gospel and saying, I can't believe it's true. That doesn't make sense. I can, I can pretty much understand these things, and that doesn't make sense. And that's spiritual blindness. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that the gospel is foolishness to those that don't believe. It's foolishness. But once you, you, you understand it, once you see it and experience it, oh, it tastes good. Because let's be honest. Grace doesn't make sense. Extending someone forgiveness doesn't make sense. But instead of just wiping us off the face of the earth, God chose to bring his son and in his love and in his grace, give us a way to come to him. What's interesting is the children of Israel had this warning from Isaiah 600 years by this point. And they were so spiritually blind that they couldn't see that it applied to them. And that's why Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, 600 years, this has been told you, but you've closed your eyes. You haven't seen it. And this attacks the spiritually blind heart. The heart that is blinded by by intellectualism, false intellectualism. They had their system. They knew it was right. Don't challenge it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Spiritual blindness comes from the pit of hell itself. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The last type of heart we see is in the very last phrase, which is both hope but also talks about this heart. And hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And the word for turn there is to repent, is to turn around, is is to, to give in and say, you are right, I am wrong, and I will follow you. And so the fifth kind of heart here is stubborn hearts. Stubborn hearts. I don't need a savior. I don't need help. I'm pretty good. I don't feel like turning around. 
But Paul says, if you see with your eyes, if you hear with your ears, if you understand with your heart, if you come to Christ and turn and repent, the offer is of healing. The offer is, the offer is to remove the calluses. It's to remove the dullness. It's to remove the bitterness in that heart and to make it whole. Now, maybe this speaks to those that play with the gospel, to cultural Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning just because it's the thing to do on Sunday mornings. Now, I'm, I'm the first to admit that cultural Christianity is waning in America. But maybe you're just here because it's the thing you grew up doing, the thing to do. Be, be careful of that because this, if we play with the gospel, say the right things, but our hearts aren't pricked to be in a relationship with God, then we're not saved. You can come here every Sunday of your life, and if you haven't turned and given your heart to Jesus, you are not saved and not part of his family. And Jesus says, believe in me. Believe that I gave my life for you. Trust me with your life. Have faith in me, and then you will be saved. If they would turn, oh, God would heal. I'm going to end this section, this point, with a quote from Marshall again. God's word brings the diagnosis of sin, which is painful to hear and accept. But at the same time, it wounds in order to heal. Once a person deliberately refuses the word, there comes a point when he is deprived of the capacity to receive it. It is a stern warning to those who trifle with the gospel. Don't trifle with the gospel. Give yourself over to it fully. Trust God. Third point, in just the last couple verses. And this is how Luke ends the book of Acts. The unquenchable gospel will not be stopped from spreading to the end of the earth. The unquenchable gospel will not be stopped from spreading to the end of the earth. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So at the end of this, this warning and reprimand of the Jewish people that were dis- unbelievers, it wasn't to all Jews, it was to those that wouldn't believe, wouldn't accept the truth. At the end of that, he says, know this, that from, from this point on, be completely sure that the gospel was also sent to the Gentiles because they will listen. It's an issue of receptivity, not race. And that had to annoy them. Maybe anger or infuriate would be better words. But what a beautiful statement of Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. So the book started by saying that the gospel would go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost or to the end of the earth. And the book ends by saying the gospel went to the end of the earth and it's going to the end of the earth and it's not stoppable. You might notice verse 29 isn't in most of your Bibles. A couple versions have it in, in square brackets. Um, verse 29 probably isn't in the oldest manuscripts, probably was a scribal edition. It just summarizes what's earlier. But we want to uh, jump to, to verse 30. The unfortunate situation Paul is in. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. He's under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's how Acts ends. What happened to Paul? I don't know. Come next week and find out uh, (laughs) for the rest of the story. But Paul isn't the hero of Acts. Paul's not the point of Acts. What's the point of Acts? The gospel goes unhindered. The gospel goes to the whole world. The point of Acts is the formation of the church spreading the gospel by carrying on God's work, the work of Christ, to the world. And so he stops with, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we see him here welcoming believers, welcoming unbelievers. And we know he welcomed believers because of some of the the books that he wrote during this time. He welcomed Luke. He welcomed Timothy. He welcomed Tychicus, Epaphrodites, Mark. He he was encouraging other believers. We also know during this time he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That is perhaps not wasting your time in jail. He was encouraging the church. But more than anything, he was unhindered, boldly sharing the gospel. His situation that seemed unfortunate actually allowed him to spread the gospel unhindered. He was chained to the guards, like I said. The guards switched every six hours, and Paul kept preaching. Probably slept in there sometimes. That's why in Ephesians 6, which he wrote during these two verses... Ephesians six nineteen and 20, and also for me, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's his passion. Christ be magnified. Share the gospel. Even in this setting, Paul is asking for prayer to share. Prayer is always the fuel of God's work. And he's asking for the church to pray. And so I end with Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Almost end. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, those guys chained to him, yeah, they all know, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It wasn't about imprisonment to Paul. It was about a heart where his core, his center was, how can I magnify Christ? How can I share the gospel? In that verse, and and the English doesn't show it real well, Um, although ESV does a a good job with the word order. It says the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The very last word of the book of Acts is unhindered. Unhindered. It's where we got the title unquenchable for, for part of the series. And it's a reminder that nothing men can do can stop the progress of the gospel. Nothing can stop the progress of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel is unstoppable. The church 
is unstoppable. Praise God that that's what we're part of. Praise God that he has chosen us to be his ambassadors. So as the worship team comes up, the message of the morning, the questions of the morning is where is our heart and where is our boldness? The gospel is unstoppable, so why not share it? It's a guaranteed win. So why not be part of that? Because that we are as the church. Let's stand and sing just a song that reminding, reminds us of that core, of that center, of the gospel, of why we're here. God, Lord, I pray, I pray those two things, the two challenges from the text today. I pray that for any of us here, if our hearts are hard, if our hearts are cold, if our hearts are blind, if our hearts are prideful, that you would break through those barriers and soften our hearts to follow you, God. Take those obstacles that Satan wants to put in the way of a relationship with you and just tear those down. Help us to repent. Help us to come to you with an attitude of looking to turn around. But Lord, the second challenge, I pray that you would help us to be bold, to be a people that are willing to share that good news, the greatest news ever, that God loved the world and sent his son to pay for our sin. And so Lord, help us to step out in faith and be a people excited about you and bold for you because the gospel will go out unhindered. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your name.